we're all out there leaking our hard hats and fireproof clothes and like filming this thing. And we fire it up and all 264 servers start blinking green. And then over the satellite internet connection, there's no cell service. We're way out there. We're like linked into our, our wallet and we're seeing Bitcoin accumulating in this wallet. And we just basically like share this video with the venture capitalists. Like here's a ball of fire. We pushed this button, it got smaller. And then over here, there's like Bitcoin coming. And so this is the business model. It's not boring. This story is about working hard, even when it seems silly. It's not boring. And for the people trying to make crazy things happen. It's that Not boring is for the optimist. Take a little shot of optimist. Take a little shot of optimist. Let's just zoom out and take a little shot of optimist. Happy Thursday and welcome to Not Boring Founders. I'm your host, Packy McCormick, and this is a podcast where we talk to the people who are building the future. We've been away for a little bit this summer. Summer months are a little bit slower, but it's September, it's post-Labor Day, and we're back at it. And not only are we back at it, we're back at it with one of the companies that I've come across this summer that I've been most excited about. I first met Chase Lockmiller and Cully Cavnis, the co-founders of Crusoe Energy, a couple of months ago when Lee Jacobs at Long Journey Ventures introduced us. He told me that he had a business that he thought that I would be fascinated by, and after my first conversation with Chase, I knew he was right. Crusoe Energy is exactly the kind of startup that I want to see in the world. It's a hard startup solving an important problem. When I say hard startup, this is a company that's building its own data centers next to gas flares at remote oil and gas drilling sites. By doing that, it solves a couple of problems simultaneously and in the process it's built what I think is one of the greatest cathedrals to capitalism in startup land. On the one side, it's helping the oil and gas companies deal with the methane that's emitted when they drill for oil and gas. In the process, it's getting this cheap energy from the companies and it turns around and uses that to do energy intensive, compute intensive things like first mining Bitcoin and now training AI models, it made a realization in both of those cases that unlike a company like Amazon and, and AWS, where they're serving customers on the web for whom every millisecond of latency matters, so they need to place their data centers close to the customers, whether in Bitcoin mining or in training AI models, that millisecond doesn't matter quite as much. So they can set up data centers in remote locations where a company like AWS couldn't. Crusoe is also helping to address the climate crisis by partnering with oil and gas companies, companies that are often seen as the enemy by people inside the climate industry, realizing that oil and gas isn't going anywhere anytime soon. One of the things that I love most about the company is the realism. It's dealing with the situation on the ground as it is, not as it wishes that it might be, and then using that situation to build the world that it wants to see. In this conversation, we get into a lot of the details on how they built the business, what other hard startup founders can learn from the way that they've approached it, how to finance a company like this, Chase and Cully's background working together, Cully's work on the climate side of things and how that led him to want to start Crusoe. 
There's a bunch of great stuff in here. I'd also highly recommend the conversation that Chase had with my friends Ben and David at Acquired on one of the more recent episodes of ACQ2. In that one, they get into a lot more of the technical nitty gritty, and I think it's a really good context. Frankly, I think people should be consuming a lot more Crusoe Energy content. I hope they go on a lot more podcasts. would love to do a write-up on the company in the future. I think they're going to be a key contributor to both helping to solve the climate crisis and powering kind of the next generation computing platforms that I'm so excited about. Anyway, let's hear it from Chase and Cully themselves on this week's episode of Not Boring Founders. Chase and Cully, welcome to Not Boring Founders. Thanks for having us. Excited to be here. To set the stage, Cully, you wrote a piece on the relationship between energy, technology, climate, human progress. Can you explain what you were going for there and why the mission of Crusoe is what it is? Jumping right in, huh? We're just going to go straight into the... <laughs> we're going to go straight in. We'll get your background later, but I think it, it's a helpful framing to understand why this is so important. Happy to talk about that. I think it, it does get to the why behind the company in a lot of ways. We started off capturing flaring natural gas in the oil field, generating power from that otherwise wasted energy to power modular data centers. We started with Bitcoin mining. We've moved into a lot of GPU-based AI computing. We can get to all that. But just as a really quick context, the idea was to solve this big environmental problem in the oil industry, which is a lot of wasted gas being lit on fire, not completely combusted, a lot of methane emissions escaping to the atmosphere from this practice of flaring, which happens when an oil company drills an oil well and gas is a byproduct and they don't have a pipeline to put that gas into. They just light it on fire and recognizing that there's a lot of energy demand for computing, various types of high-performance computing. And that also creates various climate and environmental challenges with the amount of energy being consumed. Where that energy is being sourced is going to matter a lot vis-a-vis -vis any climate goals or environmental goals. So that, that, that was sort of the fundamental premise behind the company. For me, it seemed like a worthwhile problem to try to solve. I, I think we get into Chase's story, he, he probably saw a longer-term vision around where AI was going, where a lot of high-performance computing was going, and that there's a, a bigger problem to solve than just the immediate one. But finding an economic way to solve the flaring problem just in and of itself was a very worthwhile thing to start with. And to Tally's lie, your original question, the premise there is, is that I'd struggled for, for really my whole adult life between the trade-off between the environment, the economy, and the energy sources. There's this triangle of ease that I talk about in this piece published in on media. And I grew up in an oil and gas family. My, my dad, my grandfather, both were oil and gas entrepreneurs. And I was really kind of brought up to be very proud of the energy that that, that industry produces, all that it's done for the United States. I won us World War II. It secured our independence, our economic stability in many ways. Then I went to Middlebury College in Vermont, and I, I really got embedded in the other side of the argument, which is by burning a lot of fossil fuels, we are releasing a lot of carbon dioxide, methane, and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. This is having a big impact. I studied geology. I got very deep on the geology, the geologic history of extinctions, and it became pretty clear to me looking at some of those major extinctions that, yeah, when you rapidly change the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere faster than species can evolve, that can lead to 
a lot of species not keeping up and, and going away. And that's, that's an extinction. And there, there are sort of many examples of that. And we are right now changing the, the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere faster, really than at any point, not just in human history, which is what people usually talk about. We're, we're changing it faster than any time in the history of multicellular life on Earth. Wow. I did not know that actually. And that to me seems like a really dumb thing to do for a long period of time. We can do that for a while and we'll probably be okay. We can't do that for it. And, and so again, trying to recognize we need this energy source now because it supports all of human life. And we also should probably produce it in the most efficient, least wasteful way possible because doing anything other than that is, is sort of ignoring this other big problem on the environmental side. And thinking about that for a long, long period of time, I was a Thomas Watson fellow. I started my career in the geothermal energy industry. I struggled constantly with this tension between energy, the environment, and the economy. And I came up with this sort of formula that I named Tally's Law. It's actually named after my dog, mostly because I think, yeah, she's such like a, a, like a cute, lovable animal that it reminds me about the importance of biodiversity. Like she doesn't have the benefit of all the energy source uplift that, that humans do. Animals like her left to their own devices would just have the downside of the, or the <laughs> consequences. And basically the, the formula is, is RT equals PQV. So on the one side of the equal sign, you've got resources, natural resources, and technology, energy technology mostly. And then that balances with the other side of the equation, which is population, human population, quality of life, the average quality of life of all those people, and environmental health, some abstract measure of the total environment's health and, and included with that, like sort of like climate change impacts on environmental health. And the sort of insight is that if you raise population and or raise quality of life, which we're doing, yep. like GDP is going up, then unless you do something about natural resources, which are more or less fixed or declining as we consume scarce, certain scarce resources or technology that extracts and accesses those energy sources, the only other thing that's going to happen is that environmental health is going to go down. And it'll go down basically in proportion to population going up and quality of life going up. Unless you do something about tea, which is technology. How do you use this energy more efficiently? For example, the oil and gas we're producing, let's not light a lot of it on fire wastefully. Let's actually use that to power computing. We can improve quality of life. We can improve tea to improve quality of life without impacting V, which is the environmental health. That, that's sort of my framework for thinking about it. If you get deep into edge cases and like, other pieces of math I put into it over time, but that's like the simple version of it. It simplifies down to the human population, quality of life, environmental health, balanced with our energy economy on the left side. So I know that's pretty deep right off the bat. We can come. No, I like I like going deep on the back because I this is a topic that I've been spending a lot of time studying. I think really got like most energy pilled. I, I started my life on an energy trading desk for a summer. And so like I'm a little bit familiar with it from, from back then, but got re-energy pilled reading Where's My Flying Car by, by Jace Rose Hall. And I had always kind of been in this camp that like, oh, using less is, is probably good. And like, let's figure out ways to, to stop using as much energy. Hadn't thought deeply about it. It was, it was kind of more from that camp. And then solved the this graph that he had in the book of the Adams curve, which was like our energy uses usage grows 2% every year. And then we flatline 
And then we stopped getting all these sci-fi things that we wanted. And so started digging in more and more. And I think that's the, that's the thing that I'm hopeful about is that by improving technology, you could actually turn a lot more things into resources. Like human intelligence is the greatest resource that we have because we can figure out how to use more energy while saving the environment and, and all that. So I think it's the perfect place to start. How did you guys come together? I mean, it's weird that you have these two perfect backgrounds, knew each other growing up, and then came together to start start Crusoe. We both grew up in Denver. We went to the same high school, Kent Denver. Shout out to the Kent Denver Sun Devils. And Chase was our resident genius, math genius, went to MIT to study math and physics and Stanford to study computer science and AI. I went to Middlebury, studied geology, an MBA, and worked in the energy industry originally and renewable energy, and then later back in oil and gas. We kind of recombined more than a decade after leaving high school. We stayed in touch. I think we both had mutual admiration and respect. I'll let Chase tell more about his career. He had a, a great pathway through quant trading, using a lot of AI systems to predict securities prices, and then in a you know, crypto hedge fund, one of the very first ever created. And so it was kind of really deep in that space as well. And we came back actually on a mountain climbing trip. Chase had made a second attempt successfully the second time to climb Mount Everest. And I really wanted to hear that story. And he come back to Colorado and we went for a mountain climbing trip in Colorado in our 14ers, which are much humbler, smaller mountains than the Himalayas, but still gave us a good challenge. And we climbed Mount Mount Columbia, Mount Harvard. There's a ridge between the two. And we did a, a big sort of intense day hike. And we were talking about just really, I think, the two sensitive experiences we've been having. I've been working at a, a private equity funded oil and gas company. We'd been exploring sort of a new part of, of the Denver Basin, which is a, a shale oil and gas field in Colorado. We sort of made some very exploratory wells that were stepping outside the, the main bulk of the basin. And we'd been successful in finding that we could extend that oil field and produce oil in a new part of the state that was just outside the margin of what was really being produced at that time. And because we were just outside that margin, doing something a little bit more fringe or exploratory, there wasn't a lot of gas pipeline infrastructure there. So we brought online these, these new oil wells and the gas didn't have a great solution. And so flaring was sort of the solution. That's what everybody does. Right? And, that, and I, was, I was a little bit just kind of shocked by how nonchalant everybody was about just lighting on fire a few million cubic feet a day of gas. And I'm trying to explain to my friends back, my roommate at Middlebury is like a PhD marine biologist. I'm trying to explain why this is like a reasonable, good thing to do. And I, I couldn't, there's not really a good explanation for it. And Can you explain, explain to me what actually happens when you're flaring? What does the flaring process look like? Yeah, basically. So oil, gas, and water are produced together into something called the separator, three-phase separator. And that the three phases are oil, gas, and water. So it, it pulls the oil and water into big tanks and trucks come multiple times a day, load that liquid in and transport it away. The oil you sell to a refinery and the truck just goes to the refinery. The gas is the third phase and it goes into a pipe leaving out of the separator. And when you're flaring, you just run that pipe up into the air, the corner of the pad, and you light it on fire with a spark ignited, basically thing, just like you'd have on your range at home, your gas range at home. Now, what we do is we tap into that gas line before it goes up the pipe and lights on fire. And we bring the gas over to a, a, a generator, either a reciprocating engine or a turbine 
to, gener to generate electrical power. And then we've devised these modular data centers that sit right there alongside the generator on pad with the oil wells in many cases and consume that electricity for energy-intensive high-performance computing, either Bitcoin mining or increasingly, very quickly increasingly, GPU computing for AI. And we'll get into all that, I'm sure. But back to your question, I was struggling, just feeling frankly guilty and embarrassed about we're flaring all this gas and I wish there was some other better solution for it. And Chase was sharing his, his experiences on the computing side and he was just remarking, it's so energy intense using these like large clusters of high performance computing to either run AI or to, or on the crypto side, Bitcoin mining, Ethereum mining, all sort of famously energy intensive. And the insight was basically, hey, maybe one of these problems can solve the other. Maybe the energy appetite of all this computing could actually be the thing that can soak up the wasted energy on site in these locations that are stranded. They don't have access to a pipeline or to the grid to sell power. We need to bring the demand to the source of energy so that it stops being wasted. And maybe that's actually a great business model because that energy is doesn't have much value to it when it's being lit on fire, literally being lit on fire. If we could provide any value, that would be marginally better. And it would have all these amazing environmental benefits. Less waste, less methane emissions. Our generators get 99.9% .9 combustion efficiency of the methane compared to closer to 90% for the flare. So that delta methane is 84 times as powerful as CO2. So you prevent a little bit of methane and you prevent a lot of CO2 equivalent emissions. And, and we actually reduced the CO2 equivalent emissions up by about 70% compared to ongoing flaring at the site. And, and we do that in a way that provides good economic alignment for everybody. The oil company's better off, the consumer better off of that oil because the oil company didn't have to pay for all kinds of crazy infrastructure to otherwise mitigate the flaring. And we have a very attractive energy price for, for our computing workloads and our computing customers are better off because we can pass that savings on to them. So it is this sort of win, 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 including for the environment. And I would imagine the people are not going to stop Bitcoin mining. People are not going to stop training models just because of the environmental concerns. And so you're also preventing that computing from happening and taking energy elsewhere as well, right? Yeah, that's right. People sort of have this relentless pursuit of progress. And I don't think there's anything that we as a society are going to do that's going to slow that. I mean, there's an inherent drive that's, that's just really inherent to our own humanity that sort of pushes us in the direction of progress. And that progress is going to be in the form of wanting to raise your own quality of life, your own living standard increase the amount of excess and increase the amount of wealth in whatever way, shape, or form that that's perceived. And all of these things are going to require technological development, consumption, and energy production really at the foundation of it all. And I think Cole and I both share sort of this strong environmental perspective. I think at our core, we're definitely both environmentalists. I think one thing the other side that that is also true about me is that I am a I'm a libertarian capitalist. I believe that people are incentivized to behave in the way that benefits them the best and if you can provide economic solutions to th things that at the end of the day is going to change human behavior at the most meaningful scale. And 
when you look at our solutions and the way we've tried to approach offering computing infrastructure, we've really tried to offer it in a way that can provide people an environmentally aligned solution that also saves them money, that really incentivizes the behavior that's better for the climate, better for the world, and eliminates a lot of these negative externalities that at the end of the day are going to make our planet uninhabitable if they play out for too long of a, a period of time. I think that's really the crux of our business is trying to do, I, I think when we, when we set out and we really started, we, we really wanted to build a business that could do well by doing good. And really having that alignment of those two things where it's like, we feel good about the impact we're having on the world and we can scale that impact because it's highly economic and our customers are actually getting a lot of value from the services that we're providing. Yeah, I remember the first time we talked and after I heard about Crucible for the first time, just thinking that it's like the purest form of capitalism doing its work and working its magic that I'd ever seen that you have this problem and this cheap resource, you had something that's consuming the resource and then you can bring them together and also make the planet better. In the beginning, like, was there a magic moment when you just saw these two different things and you guys were talking on the mountain or maybe afterwards and thought like, holy shit, we can do all of this in one thing. It's going to take a lot of work, but this solves kind of everything. Coley sort of reflected on the whole story of us kind of founding the company and really coming up with this idea of unlocking value and stranded energy with computing and really creating value with computing resources where it's easier to it's easier to move data than it is to move gas or move power. And really that's the crux of our business. And the, the, really the trade-off that we make is that we're willing to operate in more challenging environments. And in doing so, we can create more environmentally aligned computing solutions that are also lower cost because we're tapping into waste products, right? We're creating value from things that would otherwise be wasted, be flared or, or curtailed or priced negatively in the, in, in, in the market in the case of the renewable energy producers that we work with. But a, a bit more context just on the founding story from my perspective, I think I'd spent a lot of time in the AI research ecosystem in the early part of my career. And I was always a large practitioner to deploy these statistical inference models at scale, mostly for financial applications. In the early 2010s, right, 2012, there was a, there was a sort of a revolution really started and, and it came with the, the publishing of this paper of, of something called AlexNet. This sort of started the boom and transformation that we saw kind of coming from deep learning. It was one of these moments where I was sort of in the thick of all of these statistical inference techniques for my, for my specific use case in the financial sector. But as the years went on and as the months went on, it was kind of one of these moments where you saw these solutions really crushing every benchmark that existed, right? So it was for whatever the machine learning or AI application is, there's a, there's a core data set that people train on. And there's a lot of these types of competitions. And then there are sort of benchmark scoring on like, how, how good are we doing? How good is this model performing? And a lot of the historical models are sort of more linear-based systems that really required less data to get a pretty good answer. But what we saw was that these deep learning models became exponentially better but they required exponentially more data and exponentially more computing. A lot of the model structures, I mean, they, they weren't fundamentally new breakthroughs. I mean, multilateral neural networks had existed since the 80s, 
But really where we saw the breakthrough in actual performance really was that 2012 was sort of the jumping off point. And we've seen a lot of growth and development since then. And I was sort of like in the thick of that. And we started deploying these models into a lot of the work that we were doing and really recognized, wow, we get the data center bill at the end of the month and it'd be like, holy cow, like we, we spent like a fortune on power this month. And a lot of it comes from training these big models, running these massive simulations. And, and so because of that, I always had this like large appreciation for how important energy was in the overall cost of computing. Now, I also had this feeling just seeing the trends that were playing out that what was happening, the trends would continue to play out. And, and really the big driver of these breakthroughs and, and the big driver of the, the reason why these techniques were beating every benchmark was that suddenly data had become more, like, more abundant. So we had a lot more data to train these big nonlinear models with. And we had cheaper and more widely available computing resources. And I felt like those two verticals were continue, would continue to be the primary drivers of progress in terms of AI actually transforming every aspect of everything that we do as a society. And that was like my thesis from those very, very early days. And when Coley and I went on this climbing trip together, and I, I, honestly, at the time, I didn't know any, anything about energy, right? I, I didn't know, like I was just a consumer of energy, right? When we had this big data center operation, I didn't really know where it came from. It was just kind of like, they just sent me a bill and I was like, oh, okay, like that's a, that's a huge number. If you look at the way the energy ecosystem really generates, produces, transports, and consumes energy, it's a really nuanced ecosystem. We sort of take for granted that you just plug something into the wall and suddenly you can charge your iPhone or you can turn on your computer. But like there's so much infrastructure that plays into getting it to that point. And there's a lot of loss. There's a lot of cost along the way. And I think what really blew my mind when Coley was sort of walking me through this whole flaring problem was that this product, right, this gas that has a value in another context, right? In my house, I use it to cook eggs with in the morning. I also use it to run my furnace that heats my home. And I pay money for that. But in, so in the context of it being at my house, I'll, I'll pay for it. But in the context of it being in the middle of this oil field with no midstream infrastructure to effectively transport it, it's useless. It's worthless. And I think that was really, really what I was mind blown about was, was sort of the fact that there was this commodity that's useful in one case, but not in this case, and the scale at which the problem was manifesting. Because as we kind of got into it and understanding how much flaring happens globally, you're talking about 14 billion cubic feet of natural gas per day that get burned and flared with no beneficial use. This is enough to power sub-Saharan Africa. It's like two-thirds of Europe's gas consumption. Jeez. It, it's a really, really enormous figure that goes completely wasted. And with that comes a, a massive environmental footprint, largely from the waste methane that escapes uncombusted. And when aggregated, it, it sort of generates close to a gigaton of emissions. And putting that in the context of, okay, what is a gigaton of CO2 equivalent emissions? As a global humanity, we generate a little over 50 gigatons of emissions. And so you're talking about something that accounts for nearly 2% of global greenhouse gas emissions, and no one's benefiting, right? Like generally things that drive large sources of emissions we benefit from in one way, shape, or form. Like steel production drives a lot of greenhouse gas emissions, but it also gives us steel, which gives us skyscrapers and all these useful products that we use from steel. 
In the case of flaring, it's like it's literally a negative externality. It's like a tax on everyone in the world because it's it's leading to tremendous amounts of greenhouse gas emissions, a warming climate that was leading to higher probabilities of big storms, fires, all of these natural disasters that are creating more uninhabitable climate for everyone. And it's this hidden silent tax on everyone. Our goal in it, as a business and mentioned, well, I'm an environmentalist, I'm also a libertarian capitalist, was like, th this actually is an opportunity because, because this is useful in one situation, but not this situation. If we could figure out a situation that we could make it useful, that market is enormous. Being able to sort of tap into essentially a free energy resource, who wouldn't want that when your primary cost driver is energy? But that was really the catalyst of the business. And our goal always was to enable many different computing applications because seeing these things play out between digital currencies being developed and really requiring a lot of computing power and the transformations taking place in AI, I really felt like the, the biggest growth sector for computing was really going to come, or the biggest growth sector for data centers was really going to come from these more energy-intensive computing applications, whether it's proof-of-work blockchains or things for high-performance computing or scientific computing or artificial intelligence research that, that really just required tremendous amounts of power consumption. Yeah, it's, I was having a conversation at dinner last night with somebody in finance who works out of an office that can kind of do anything. And so we were talking about these arbitrage opportunities that exist, but it's not like arbitrage opportunities that you like wish would exist where like there's just these mispricings on different markets or whatever. Like you need to do these heavy physical things, but if you can do these heavy things, look around you everywhere, then there are, there are arbitrage opportunities that can be taken advantage of. This seems like a pretty huge one that you pay a certain amount of money for that same energy somewhere, but you can just put the data center there, get the energy for a much lower cost, and then turn it into something useful. How does that work with the oil and gas company? Are they paying you to take the energy? Are you paying them? What does that look like? We have a pretty standard deal at this point where we'll, we'll pay for the natural gas. We're typically not paying as much as, as a pipeline would pay if it was at a pipeline interconnect point. But you understand why now, I think, because we're in a place that doesn't have access to a pipeline. And we're bringing out a lot of very capital intensive equipment to that site to consume that energy. We're bringing out power generation systems, modular data centers, and we own and operate all the compute within the data center too. So these chips are not cheap. I mean, anybody who's opened the Wall Street Journal recently can, can sort of tell that there's a lot of CapEx going to the computing asset as well. But we don't charge them anything. It's a free solution for their flaring. They're making some revenue on the gas to the extent we're generating carbon credits, which in some cases we, we do do that as well. We'll work out a relationship where they're getting some of the carbon credit economics. And, and then we manage the computing asset and sort of monetize the computing asset. We're effectively a gas buyer. Or it's effectively a, a gas sales agreement like they would have with a pipeline company. But different terms and conditions and a different end customer on the other side of it, basically. I actually love the way you framed it as essentially an arbitrage strategy. In my previous life, we were building essentially statistical arbitrage strategies. I think this is certainly a, a, another manifestation of something that's valuable in one, one case, but not in another. How do I move it from that unvaluable case to the valuable case? Take ownership and then move it from the unvaluable case to the valuable case. That is the capturing the arbitrage. And that's really what we're doing in terms of unlocking value with the stranded energy with computing. And there's all these like 
beneficial side effects, right, in terms of the environmental impact and reducing methane emissions, creating a revenue stream from an otherwise wasted resource, and in our mind, really being able to offer a sustainably cheaper cost of computing to the marketplace by harvesting this otherwise wasted product. Yeah, it's it's beautiful when you think about it and see it now in action. I'd love to go back to the early days of the company because this is one of those ideas when it's up and working and when GPU demand is through the roof and when everybody needs your product, it seems obvious. What were those first conversations with Let's start with investors, with with VCs, like where you're saying, look, we want to do this CapEx intensive thing. We're doing Bitcoin. We're doing this piece of the climate that like climate people probably don't even really want to touch. Will you give us money to go build this business? Yeah, it's funny. So I was actually our first investor. I really sort of viewed it through this lens of like, well, if I invest this money and we spend money on CapEx and build this thing. I'll probably be able to get my money out because we sort of have this strategic cost advantage around the energy. And we're in a worst case scenario, hopefully I'll recover some meaningful percentage of the capital I invest. But you're right. It's controversial in in certain ways because certainly during that era when we started the company in 2018, going into 2019 was when we went to go raise our first external capital. And the climate at the time was there were there was a lot of focus around ESG. Oil companies were the devil, and from especially from sort of the the venture technology community within Silicon Valley, and the fact that we were working with oil companies felt uncomfortable for certain investors. There was a very blue chip focused VC or a blue chip VC that early on wouldn't even take the conversation with us because we in. We, because we touched oil, like the, the fact that we worked with oil at all was like a, a black mark. That, that, that investor has since come back to me when we were raising our, our Series C and said, Chase, look, I really actually want to apologize because I didn't even give you the time of day during that early phase. And I didn't really understand your business in terms of recognizing that you're actually reducing emissions from the oil production process. And I think when you, when you reflect on the events, the geopolitical events that have happened over the last 18 months, the war in Ukraine, for all the horrible things that have resulted from it, I think one thing that, that's beneficial from, from this war is really it's shown people the importance of energy in the world and the importance of oil specifically. And really people recognize that the reality is, is that the world still really runs on oil. We require a lot of oil to maintain existing quality of life. And a lot of this gets taken for granted by many, many broad-scale consumers from the the materials that go into the clothing we wear, the packaging, the transportation, the ease of being able to get on a plane and go on a weekend trip somewhere across the country. I mean, all of these things that we sort of take for granted as part of the modern existence would not fundamentally be possible at all without oil. We sort of took this very pragmatic approach of wanting to recognize that oil is important and it is important to modern existence and but it does have a cost associated with it and if we could find a way to actually minimize that that environmental impact by getting rid of this negative externality and this problem associated with flaring it could be a net positive for everyone but we did so early on in those investor conversations i think there were certainly it was a polarizing topic in terms of okay it's not a pure software business we're not a, a SaaS company for whatever business enterprise vertical that hadn't been tackled yet 
It was a capital intensive business that touched oil and gas. And it took folks that really understood and were willing to do the deep work around like what was actually happening to want to take a, a bet on Crusoe. And we were fortunate to have some some great early supporters that were willing to really think outside the box and take that risk risk on us. A handful of angels that were very, very helpful in the process, like like Lee Jacobs, who runs a fund called Long Journey Ventures at this point. And the 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 leads of the round were Founders Fund, who notoriously is 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 willing to invest in contrarian or counterpositioned concepts. And I think this was a great, great fit for them. And we're very, very thankful for their early support in terms of taking a risk and really recognizing this opportunity. And they co-led the round with Bain Capital Ventures. We worked with a, a partner that historically hadn't done things like this, but was recognized really that that arbitrage opportunity that we sort of discussed, but that partner's name is Salil Deshpande. And he worked closely with a, a guy who was a principal at the time and is now as a partner, Stefan Cohen. And the two of them really were willing to do the work and recognize the opportunity that we were building towards and make a make a bet on us and, and really take risk with us. And we were very just grateful and thankful to those early supporters because there's a lot of ideas out there. Ideas can be cheap at times and it, it requires both a great idea with capital and a relentless focus on execution. And that's really what's got us to where we're at today. I wanted to just to share a, a story about that early fundraise that I think is kind of fun. So like Chase mentioned, he put up the capital to build our first prototype. It was like a 20 foot long, basically shipping container sized data center, 264 servers, ASICs in it. And we set up satellite internet connections in the middle of this. We worked on a deal with a private oil and gas producer in Northeast Wyoming, very remote spot. It's, it was like a multi-hour drive from Denver up to Northeastern Wyoming. And then another hour and a half plus on a dirt road from a town called West Wyoming. You'd, you'd kind of go like west from there. On this, how did you find this guy? It, it was through kind of relationships in the oil and gas business, and and actually someone who works and has worked on our team since the very beginning, Andrew Likens, was somebody that put me in touch with this company before Andrew even worked for us. He was just kind of like hearing about this crazy idea and said, "Hey, maybe maybe this could help." I heard they have a flare. And anyway, we worked out a, a deal with this producer, single well in the middle of northeast, very remote Wyoming. And there are these, it almost looked like old home videos now where we had our iPhone and we're filming this setup. There's sort of like rented power generation systems. It looks like it might be held together with duct tape and bailing wire. And a lot of the like plumbing work that we did with the piping was, we're, we're still learning a lot of stuff, right? So you can kind of picture the way that look. And we're all out there leaking our hard hats and fireproof clothes and like filming this thing. And we fire it up and all 264 servers start blinking green. And then over the satellite internet connection, there's no cell service. We're way out there. We're like linked into our, our wallet and we're seeing Bitcoin accumulating in this wallet. And we just basically like share this video with the venture capitalists. Like here's a ball of fire. We push this button, it got smaller. And then over here, there's like Bitcoin coming. And so this is the business model. Yeah. They, they t once they saw it, then the seed round came. I think until you can actually until Chase took the risk to put up the money to make that real, and a picture's worth a thousand words concept, it was just too abstract. It sounded totally insane, I'm sure. And, and then we showed them it really could work. And okay, here's a seed check. We took that, we did more, bigger scale, new clients, showed that we could operate a little bit. Here's a series A. 
we went bigger, got bigger clients, Series Bs. Now we've raised over half a billion dollars of, of equity and we're operating something approaching 200 megawatts of data centers powered by stranded, wasted, clean energy sources. It's really been an amazing journey in five years from that that sort of selfie video in the in the Wyoming oil field to where we are today. It feels like a long way away. Yeah. Two other things that I'll just add there. One is that Lee, when we showed him this video, Lee Jacobs, he coined this phrase. He was sort of putting our business as succinctly as possible. He's like, oh, your business is gas to cash, gas to cash. <laughs> and that was like his, his catchphrase around like his investment in Crusoe, which was funny. And then the second thing I'll say is that w- when we were driving out to this area of Wyoming, like Coley and I drove up from Denver, this area, he's, he said it's outside Lusk. I mean, that's like Lusk being nearby is sort of a generous statement, but like driving through this area of Wyoming, like I didn't actually realize there were areas that were this remote, like in America, you're driving for (laughs) hours without seeing a single building or car. And you're just like, what, like no one lives, there's nothing out here. It's just like a very empty space, but it was a great place for us to build our first flare gas powered Bitcoin mining data center. That, that is an incredible story. And to think that some people just raise a seat around on a deck. I want to see more companies set up a remote data center in the middle of Wyoming to to unlock that seed round. When we raised our seed, we had our first project and and the unit economics like weren't nearly as good as they are today because we hadn't done all of the optimizations and things that we've done to drive our overall costs and expand our margins over the course of time. But at the time we were raising our seed round from this single location, we had I think it was about, we had about 250K in like ARR, like annualized revenue from this single location and a payback on the CapEx targeting in the sub two year range. So it was kind of a, it was a good setup and it was sort of like a, hey, look, we can make money with this. And you also have this call option on Bitcoin in terms of like if Bitcoin actually becomes more widely adopted, this is going to become even more valuable. And that was what ended up playing out. But it didn't necessarily have to be that case in order for us to be successful. It was kind of like creating these these great unit economics based on tapping into this waste energy supply. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask about the unit economics and just about the kind of capital structure of the business generally and how you've thought about financing it. For everybody listening, you should go listen to the ACQ2 podcast that Chase did with the guys over at Acquired. And you talk about the different ways that you finance the different pieces of, of the business. Getting really tactical on just again, like early stage, as more companies are going out and tackling these big capital intensive problems, and I want to back a bunch of them, and I hope we see a lot more of them. Like how much of that did you have to have planned out at the beginning? How much did you have to convince investors that you had ways to fund the growth of the business that wasn't just equity for things that maybe shouldn't have been financed with equity? Like how much of the plan has to be baked in up front when you are going to be doing something so capital intensive? At the seed stage, there was a lot of like, well, we could probably get debt on these things. We're buying generators. Probably someone's going to give us some debt on that. I don't know. We really didn't have a great plan at the time. But what's interesting about being an entrepreneur and kind of building a company is that you're inspired to build a company to solve problems that you feel like need to be addressed. I mean, at the end of the day, that's really what's driven Coley and myself is that we, we want to create environmentally aligned computing solutions. We're inspired about just sort of solving these energy infrastructure challenges, enabling the future of computing to drive innovation and transform the world and the economy. But 
when you look at sort of the history of venture capital, I think like there's a bit of a recency bias that people have in like the post-internet era and like the web two era where it's like the the best thing to fund was all of these software startups that have high gross margins when they reach scale and don't require a lot of capex, just require a lot of opex in terms of GNA to hire highly talented people. And that's like the primary expense line item. When you look at actually what what I feel like are the most important problems probably of our generation, it's they're going to be around climate. Like how are we actually going to solve these problems to make the world a livable place for generations? I mean, I have two young kids. Coley has one one kid and another one on the way. You have kids. I, I think we're, we're all sort of thinking about it through this lens of being parents and just saying like, okay, what is what is the future going to look like for our kids? And energy infrastructure problems are not SaaS problems, right? They require tons of capital to really deploy these things at scale. I mean, you're talking about like the infrastructure the world runs on. When I think through that, I, I think there's emerging a lot of interesting ways to grow and fund businesses. And I think founders, particularly in the climate space, are, are thinking through it through this lens of like, okay, I'm running a startup. That doesn't mean I have to fund it indefinitely with equity. In fact, I probably shouldn't do that. And there's like cheaper sources of capital that are going to be way cheaper than my equity cost of capital that I can leverage to basically bootstrap and grow my business in a meaningful way. And Cole and I were very fortunate to early on, around the time of our Series A, we got the support from a, uh, a credit fund that was willing to take this risk with us and think very uniquely about like what are the assets they're actually underwriting and what what are the revenue streams tied to those assets and independent of the fact that we're this small startup with a small team and short operating history no bank was going to take a bet on us right like no yeah. no traditional bank no traditional lender is going to take a bet on us but we were fortunate that this this creative credit fund called Upper 90 was willing to work with us and we actually raised a a 40 million dollar project financing facility with them early on that was in conjunction with our Series A. And really this enabled us to scale up the business and prove out that the unit economics would work well in a way that didn't cost us tremendous amounts of dilution. It really enabled us to grow our footprint, spend CapEx, uh, prove out the business model. They earned a great return, especially when you think about it from a, a debt perspective. The way it was structured was it had equity characteristics and debt characteristics, so it was a structured project financing facility. But it worked really well for us because it was way, way, way cheaper than equity capital and really, really enabled us to scale. When we think about it today, I, I think we're, we've sort of achieved a, a much larger scale operation, and we have different buckets of CapEx that are really mostly tied to various revenue streams between our power generation equipment, our mining hardware for our Bitcoin business, our high-performance computing servers that, that are mostly the CapEx cost is really primarily driven by the GPUs for, for our cloud business, and then our data center infrastructure. All four of these pieces of CapEx, we're able to, we're, we're sort of pushing in this direction of basically having independent CapEx facilities that are, that are tied to the asset. In the same way, when you buy a house or you buy a car, oftentimes you'll get a car loan or a mortgage and you're not putting up 100% of the value to buy that house. There's a, there's a physical asset that you're actually able to get leverage from and someone's willing to lend against as collateral. So if you default on your car payments, like you end up, you end, 
you end up you end up just giving the keys over to the the, the lender. So I, I think that's a great structure for right. us kind of going forward in terms of leveraging our equity capital stack to continue to build out the technology <clears throat> and continue to sort of invest in in future product development and then leveraging asset backed financing facilities to to really scale the the physical assets and operations of the business. I would just make one other comment about the uh, fundraising and finance side of, of this, which is I think just more relevant for like climate technology and hardware and capital intensive businesses in general. There is an interesting interaction between the like preferred equity model and a company that has been able to accumulate an asset base, like a hard asset base, which is that the next investor in, if they're taking preferred equity, if you're, if you're investing into a SaaS company, you're essentially kind of, especially in the first few rounds, you're buying a lot of option value. There's not a lot of yeah. like intrinsic inherent value in that equity. And you don't have a lot of downside protection on that option because it's really just the team, the idea. And if it doesn't work, there's not much there. If you're the net, if you're preferred equity in a company that has a meaningful amount of like hard assets, it's actually quite well downside protected and you have the upside exposure of this option. And I think that for like climate technology and companies in general, if you're building biogas things and carbon capture and sequestration things and flare mitigation things and all these hard asset based things, there is some, in many cases, actual asset value there that would de-risk and give comfort to the next preferred equity investor such that they, they can provide equity into something that's capital intensive, knowing that in the worst case scenario, they become debt and they are sort of first dollars out. And, and actually, I think that the preferred equity model works really well for these hard asset-based, capex-based businesses for that next investor. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Switching gears to one, one topic that is also kind of investment related, it's founders from related, the idea of being contrarian and right. It feels like within kind of the, the climate space, you guys have been proven to be a little bit contrarian and right on this idea. Kali, I'd love to hear like your roommate from Middlebury or the other people that you in that community. How has their view shifted from the beginning to now the broader kind of climate and environmental community? Like what do they think about the fact that you work with oil and gas now? Are people getting more rational about things or is it still oil and gas is icky? I think it's been really fascinating. People, it's like Chase said, since the Ukraine war, there's, it used to be economics and environment. And that was the debate in oil and energy. And now there's this third term, which is security. And you hear, it, especially when all that Ru Russian interference and disruptions of energy supplies between Russia, Ukraine, and, and Europe was in the headlines, people got very smart and very realistic very quickly about the fact that the number one primary source of energy for humanity today is still oil. It's number one. And renewables are still a single digit percentage of total primary energy. They're intermittent. They are not base load. And relative to hydrocarbons, they're still small. So we need this stuff. And that's a helpful starting point for the conversation. And then the next conversation has to be, well, we need to produce it as cleanly as possible. And that's what we're doing. And I would say that the conversations with environmentalists, even like very hardcore environmentalists, which I'm friends with a lot of them, I think they recognize that reality. And they like this idea of, okay, we're making incremental progress. We're marginally decarbonizing this thing that we still depend on with our lives. And we probably will for the rest of my lifetime. So let's just produce it as cleanly as possible, given that that's the case and that's just real. I think that that, that 
is a reasonable conversation that most people can can get on board with. It's not it's not the perfect answer that we're all just living in a 100% renewable powered world that we that I think a lot of people would like to believe is just around the corner. It just it's not, and we have to deal with the messy truth. And that means let's produce these hydrocarbons as cleanly as possible with as little waste and certainly as little uncombusted methane emissions as possible. I can't speak for everybody and I can't speak for other people, but I think that I feel like we we do connect on that message. And more often than not, somebody who would think of themselves as an environmentalist is going to be supportive of this idea because it creates that economic incentive to do the right thing, like Chase mentioned. Amen. We haven't even talked about what the what the product is today. I Again, I think the Acquired episode does a really, really good job of diving deep in there. But for people listening, what should they think about when they think about Crusoe today? What should they come to you for? And then what does Crusoe look like over the next five to 10 years? So today, when customers come to us, the biggest set of customers that we have are coming from the AI landscape. So people in need of AI cloud computing resources, primarily GPUs. What we've built is high-performance cloud computing platform that's, that's focused on enabling AI workloads and scientific computing workloads in a way that's both cost-effective as well as environmentally friendly. And so today, that's probably our, our, our most primary product that we, we have large amount of customers for. When you think about our business, it sort of sits at the center of like, we're, we're solving a problem for energy companies while also delivering computing solutions to folks in need of that, of that computing capacity. So in a lot of ways, we also view the energy companies, which are actually the supplier of the fuel to power the, the overall systems as customers as well. And their customers, more, more of just actually, we're able to deliver to them a service of, of flare mitigation. Or in the case of the renewable energy companies we work with, they have oftentimes renewable energy production is asynchronous with actual demand. And you have this issue where a windmill may be in an area that has no demand for the power that's actually being produced. And as a result, it gets curtailed or priced at a negative price on the actual power sales, a fairly significant percentage of the time. We can actually help solve that problem by bringing our computing load to the source of this otherwise stranded energy resource. So we view them as customers as well, kind of these broad energy energy company customers where we, we feel like we can actually help improve their unit economics by bringing a, a dense transmission-free energy consumer directly to this supply of energy that they're producing, whether it's waste or, or primary source of power. So that's broadly how you can think about our business today. I think in the future, our business really is driven by our mission of aligning the future of computing with the future of the climate. When we think about that, that, that's driven us to take this very energy-first approach to building and offering computing infrastructure to the world, whether that's for digital currencies or high-performance computing. Now, when you play out the trends that are unfolding right now with AI, the demand for computing and therefore the energy required to power that demand for computing is enormous. The CEO of Digital Bridge came out recently and said that his perspective and the company's perspective was that the demand for AI was going to drive an additional 38 gigawatts of data center infrastructure over the next 10 years, which is an astounding number. Sure. But to put it in perspective, for all of the criticisms of the Bitcoin network 
but roughly consumes eight to 10 gigawatts. You're talking about something that's four to five times larger than the Bitcoin power consumption today, just an incremental demand coming from this one resource in AI. And so a lot of the forecast for the global power consumption of, of computing is, is really going to go from, it's, it's around one to one and a half percent of global power consumption today. And most forecasts have that going north of 10% in the next 10 plus years. And with that, we, we think it's important that this, this computing infrastructure is built in a way that is harmonious with the, the long-term goals of the planet. And we think we can be a, a critical infrastructure player in terms of providing both cloud services that are, are done in a way where you don't have to actually own your own equipment. And we can deliver you a great service and a great platform to basically run your critical infrastructure on, as well as eventually, I think we'll probably contemplate various solutions for co-location or in partnership, maybe with some other folks. But at the end of the day, taking this very vertically integrated approach where we can build, operate, and manage the data centers ourselves, that's for our own consumption and our own cloud platform. But at the end of the day, I think we can offer that excess capacity that we've built in this very highly optimized, high-performance capacity to other folks that actually want to own the physical equipment themselves. Told you this one-on-one, told you about this one-on-one. I, I absolutely love this business. And I love the idea of just being able to get really excited about consuming a lot more energy. It's a really good thing. It's what drives us forward. And I think Crusoe is just like a perfect example of how we can do something that gets us more excited about consuming more energy and making the world better for people. So thanks for, for joining me and for building this. I'm really a big fan. Thank you so much for having us, Packy. This was a fun conversation.